Bird house. There were many guests on my terrace that morning, and the number of birds could not be dismissed as a small one. These birds appeared from nowhere at the time the sun was rolling over from the other side of the world to this world, as these birds happened to know it first, and all of them, in a unison, started all kinds of songs, as if some invisible force forbade them to sing so far. Surrounded by the concrete jungle. This terrace garden provided respite for both visitors and birds. Kate started Endymion, a poem of mammoth proportions with A thing of beauty is a joy forever. And like everyone, I find preen and joy in nothing more than to offer a reprieve to spiritless jaded city dwellers. This terrace secured an unremitting escape whenever I wished to go to nature, and yet did not have the circumstances conducive to travel. It was like a mini vacation at short notice and a shorter travel by a flight of stairs. It was 6 a.m. and the birds were up for some time now, mostly looking skywards to start their day. They had long distances to cover and nobody could say where and how far they would fly to find food. But despite all, the infectious gusto in their chirps and tweets was hardly reflective of the uncertainties of the day. They were joyous, ebullient, and flitting, first thing in the morning, unruffling themselves from the slumberous night and were getting ready to leave for their day, to find food far or near for themselves and their loved ones. Simple animals, simple lives. Why don't you put up a bird feeder? Asked a fellow friend as I was acquainting my friends of my bird routine. Because it would make the birds slothful and work shy, I replied. As simply put and as true as possible, he said after thinking for a while. You see, bird is a free animal. If you provide easy food to it, that might become like captivity for them. And after some time, natural instincts of flying wide and high in the open sky becomes a hogam and a grievous burden for them. Soon, these would forget how to fly long and high, eventually something for which we love the avian kingdom the most something which sets them apart from other animals. Of course, the terrace had its shortfalls when expecting birds. One couldn't expect peacocks, regardless one strayed over one evening, or macaws, or treepy, or any other exotic birds that prefer to stay in their designated geographical and ecological habitats. What my terrace had was an area of small native common birds. The birds that appeared common in appearance and could be seen commonly in nearby gardens. But their sojourn at my terrace was a matter of humble pride for me. In that spring morning, when we were greeted in the garden by a repertoire of bird sounds, I enthusiastically hopped from nest to nest to show these arounds to my curiously tended friends and their curiouser kids. A magnificent terrace garden, homing few common birds, to which I was a proud owner, suddenly didn't seem so common to me. With my exposition, it looked as if I was showing them my trophies gathered over time. All this while, I distractedly kept in eyes towards the sky a much-needed precaution. These nests were mostly of small size and at all unsuitable places, places as unconceivable as sanitary pipe and hanging basket or even wedged on a precarious ledge above the window.
There were around 20 bird houses on the terrace, all made of teak, which had a better chance of being accepted by birds, but costlier than the ones made of the board or ply. But out of these 20, only a few were occupied, and all others still had, to my discontent, an invisible toilet board hanging from them. But one thing I learned by observing the nesting behavior of these birds was that I could not alter their free will to make their nest and that too at places of their choice, even if I tried to provide a safer, secure and stronger place. One curious kid, Bunty, asked me, why so many bird houses when there aren't as many birds in them? For which I had a small but gripping story to tell him, which had drama, suspense, horror and all the other elements of a thriller. It started some two years back. My mornings were mostly consumed on the terrace, which I had named Eden, and I had erected a gazebo made of bamboo, which was neither too small nor too big on the rear side of the Eden. It had a cane sofa set, where I used to spend my mornings for reading, writing, meditation, and most important of all, to wallow in swell and pride for looking at jasmine and plumerias that bloomed proudly. It was a time when I used to hear songs of birds all around me, from neighboring terraces and trees of neighboring houses. The sheer presence of songs and calls was exhilarating, but at the same, it offered me the opportunity and challenge to decode the incoherent songs and call of the birds. Fretfully not making much ground, I used to awkwardly nod and sculp. The birds were difficult to see though, while I tried to hone my birding ears. You see, initially, this momentary lapse of not fretting the sound to a character can be frustrating, especially if the bird didn't show up. All kinds of songs, trills, chirps, alarms, calls, tweets, and perhaps a few of these were meeting calls or contact calls, which I still was not able to recognize. For the untrained ear as mine, these sounds were incoherent. When a spring sunrise would serve up dozens of different species calling at once, Picking out a single voice from the chorus felt hard enough, and trying to name each singer downright overwhelming. Nevertheless, howsoever inept I might have felt in identifying bird sounds, the joy was always aplenty. But over the course of time, with a little practice and patience, and some help from Google for birding by ears, though seemed daunting initially, I was decoding many of their songs and calls which in turn gave me remarkable insights into the kinds of few birds flitting around me. I noticed one sunbird that was a purple rumpled sunbird, a tiny iridescent blue hopper, who by habit fed exclusively on the nectary, orange tacoma flowers, and was never seen to bother itself for other brightly conspicuous blue morning glory flowers nearby. Such food fads are condoned only in the animal kingdom. Then there were the ubiquitous yet unintimidating pigeons making their presence in a large kit. Though big and beautiful in their own sense, they lost the charm with time because of being pervasive. And of course, the unpleasant crows that had disappeared with the invasion of pigeons in the past few years. The caw is now being systematically replaced by the queen of pigeons. And who can miss the sparrows, the deemed vanishing bird from our terrace, now being used as a litmus of changing fauna? But these sparrows could be seen in abundance on my terrace. In earlier days, it was occasionally and rarely seen, and this gave me a unique sense of satisfaction of being close to an endangered species. 
as such my knowledge was incomplete about endangered birds and animals and so wouldn't recognize a bird or butterfly even if it was one of the only last few left in the world that paid a visit to my terrace. Well, the story was not about any of these though. It was about a bird whose calls I heard consistently and clearly as if coming from close by on daily basis. On closer look, I could make out that it was a bulbul, red vented bulbul, with a bold vivacious chip. Small in size, flitting from branch to branch, preferring the bamboo stakes projecting from the frame of the gazebo to perch. It made its presence regular, two times a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. It did not appear to be a casual visitor, coming for nectar or insects or pests on the leaves and soil, or for a shade while passing over. Rather, it looked as if it belonged here, to this garden, sharing the same address as mine. But still, I couldn't locate which part of the garden it nested. In retrospection, I grasped why I couldn't locate the guest was because it didn't want me to. In fact, there were two of them. Obviously, in a pair, as most of the small birds used to be, and they sat in diagonally opposite parts of the garden, trying to communicate and making clever conspiracy calls against me not to divulge their whereabouts. They were indeed cleverer than their size, and I was pretty baffled by them despite my higher evolutionary ranks. This continued for a few agonizing days before I became restless and inanely curious. To find their nesting, I started watching and orienting myself with their positions closely. I was creating a spatial relationship between their calls to make a good guess. No luck. Then one fine day, when I had given up on it and left myself steam in a lurch to make myself believe that perhaps they didn't belong here but rather have a different address, I saw one of these birds, a male, by the look of a dark patch on the throat. It was clutching on a hanging basket, just in front and above my head, making high-pitched calls, perhaps to his partner, to indicate her that the coast is clear. Though exalted, Thinking this as a victory to my curious self, my alter ego told me that I have been mercifully shown rather than finding it. Anyway, then started a long journey of trust and the relationship between these birds and a human. Hitherto my presence was considered inimical by these birds. Things were changing rapidly now. Daily day would come and flitter here and there for some time, then clutch on the basket and peck at it. That reminded me that perhaps this particular basket has not been watered for long as it falls slightly being out of the way. They were making a nest of straws and twigs, and the next few days I could see them bringing straw in their beak furiously throughout the day. At times, they used to make more than 50 trips in one hour. All this while, they were checking the safety and intrusion in the basket, and finding it dry for many days in succession, they decided to make this their habitat. The laborious trips filled the spare and vacuous gaps I had in my mornings and it became part of my routine to watch them prevail. There was some of the same fitness in a man building his own house. That was in a bird's building its own nest. It reminded me of a few years back when I too was procuring building materials to build my house. Of course, not in my beak. My procurement was bigger, but these birds were definitely much more effortful. Apart from all, I developed a reverence for them, for their cleverness and hard work, respect which deepened as I spent more time watching them. 
Eventually, it was not only me who was showing changes of disposition towards the birds. These small birds too had changed their demeanor, their outlook towards me. From confusing me on a war footing to allowing me to see their nest, and now coming closer to me and chirping at an arm's distance. I had apparently stopped being a threat to them. Whenever I neared them, they didn't flit away, as was the case a few days ago. But now, perhaps accepting me and my dog, Newton, as a part of the garden, they stayed whenever I tried nearing them, though cautiously turning their neck in all directions. To make them more comfortable in my presence, I stopped paying overt attention to their activities. I tried to remain still, walking and talking less in their presence as to not intimidate them. In order to enjoy birds, it was necessary to become a part of the silence. So much so that I would put aside my mobile phone whenever I was sharing the terrace with them. After all, they too were the proud, hard-worked owner of this address. Then one day, while they were pecking on the basket, in my opinion, to do detailed work on the nest building, I saw a small beak along with the meek pecking calls of the chick. The chick was craning its neck out to meet its mother's mouth. These calls were continuous and sounded pretty darn pathetic. In fact, there were two of them. It was such a charmingly amusing sight. Two chicks fluttering their small tender wings, necking themselves above each other, eagerly making feeding calls to take the fragile worm from their mother. They were vulnerable, slender and adorable. The mother, while feeding them, was looking distraught to avoid being noticed as this was the only time that the chicks were exposed. I became quite centered on this feeding activity and found it quite delightful. I even took a zoom-in snap and used my binoculars to have a closer look, maintaining the respectful distance between the birds and myself. Beyond my understanding of bird behavior, by maintaining my distance from them, the assurance the mother bird had in me increased to another level. She now started coming down to my table and picked up food crumbs from my recent snacking. I marveled that if the things went this way, then perhaps someday soon, she would come and pick food from my open palms as it used to happen with some of the not-so-shy birds. But soon, I had to learn this bitter lesson that even after coming close enough, she maintained her distance, never coming closer by last few feet. There was a limit. How close she would come near me even if she trusted me, which I thought. Nevertheless, I was fine with the social distancing after the initial few moments of disappointment. And while my respect for her grew more. She was neither greedy nor gullible. Boundaries that have been developed over the course of thousand years of evolutionary learning from experiences of birds were being strictly observed. Many a day, whenever I strayed on my Eden for basking in the lukewarm winter sun, with morbid curiosity, I would crane my neck and guiltily try to peek inside the basket, in the absence of their parents. One particular day that I recall, an eagle flying on much higher rungs of taxonomy and the sky was seen soaring well above 75 meters above me. I wrapped up my curious peeking immediately and cautiously went back to my place. And then I had to leave the town for two days for an errand. On coming back, I noticed that the mama and papa birds were there, but the act of feeding was not to be seen. I continued on a look out for a few days and still couldn't see the chicks, which otherwise were keenly sticking their necks out of the nest and making weak sharp calls for their parents, while awaiting them to bring their food. 
Where had the chicks gone? My heart skipped a few beats. Had they learned flying and went away while I was gone? Two things prevented me from acknowledging this. First, the parent birds were still visible morning and evening doing the same routine and hopping around the hanging basket. And second, more profound was that how could the chicks learn to fly just like that? All of a sudden, in a day or two, and how the little ones could fly away so unceremoniously. It hurt me badly because all these days, while I observed them diligently, I had hoped to see them in a process of making first vain attempts of flying and struggling to do so. It would have been a comical sight, but these birds denied me my share of entertainment. Their learning to fly could not have been possible without my empirically observing eyes to watch it. Then what? Suddenly the eagle, which was hovering that day, flashed before my eyes. With the eagle eyes, it could have seen me observing something conspicuously and keenly that afternoon. It would have deductively guessed about the existence of a nest. As a result, in my absence, swooped down and clasped his lunch unceremoniously. Oh my God, what have I done? How can I be so careless and mindless of my doings? Why did this have to happen with me becoming the instrument? Will I be able to come out of this abject self-reproach soon? It was hard and incessant one month's labor for these two innocent birds. And now that they had started trusting me, will they ever come to know who took away their babies? And even if they would, by the smell of some instinctual basis, will they ever be able to find out who was the real culprit behind this misdoing? Perhaps that's why they were still coming over to the terrace near me, making calls to reveal to me the story of grief and tragedy. They were trying to extract some sympathy from me by trying to tell me about their loss, to me, who himself was perchance the culprit for them. Will I be able to face them or be able to hear and enjoy their trills now laden with grief? I was drowned in abysmal grief. It was too burdensome for me. Will I ever come out of this? It would take me a lifetime to forgive myself. One morning, after a few days, while I sat on the terrace in remorse, having my cup of tea, shying away from the birds which I had named Bulbul and Chulbul. I heard loud chirping and identified the sounds as coming from Bulbuls, from more than two sources. Maybe more of their kind have hopped into my terrace. And then what I saw, I could not take out of my mind my entire life. The sight was so remarkably exhilarating and breathtaking. Six red-vented Bulbuls. All were perched together on the panel of bamboo on the front wall of the gazebo facing me and their calls appeared to be addressing me. They appeared one happy family. If ever in my life I felt a need to learn a foreign language, which I didn't even during my many foreign trips, it was this moment. I frantically wanted to understand what they said in unison to me. All I heard was some peculiar song which was sounding something like Chickadee, Chickadee. Apart from Bulbul and Chulbul, two were perhaps their kids, who had quite grown in these few days to have an adult-like plumage, yet smaller in size, like their parents, and two more Bulbuls, who were the size of the kids. All in all, there were three pairs. Not only was I immediately lifted from my remorseful gloom, but I also found myself repeating Chikadi Chikadi with my tongue and palate without knowing the meaning. Apparently, they were saying thank you to me for sharing my address with them in a tone which couldn't have been sweeter for my ears. Or it could be 
that they wanted to take my permission to move out to some other place with their newly augmented family. However, I was all eager to offer my terrace for a few more of their nests if the case be. The pleasure of sharing my address with them was all mine. I didn't know what they were trying to convey, but whatever it was, it appeared as the sweetest song to my ears and to my soul. Then, while I sat there watching them intently, they finished what they wanted to say and fluttered away together, leaving me behind poignantly saddened. To my sheer surprise next morning, I saw all of them back to my terrace, hopping in and out of the basket nest. Maybe it was too small for them now. They needed at least a three-bedroom nest. That afternoon, I went to the local kitchen garden store and bought five sturdy birdhouses and mounted in different places on the terrace. To my dismay, none of the bulbuls occupied any of these birdhouses. Maybe the birdhouses were too colourful or too unnatural for them to inhabit. Or it could be some kind of reverse phenomena as brute parasitism. The cartoon image of birdhouses in our mind are too discordant to what birds build and live in. These birdhouses stayed unoccupied for a long time, but something strange happened next autumn. At least three or four more pair of birds came from somewhere and added their name to my nameplate. One of them was a sparrow and another was common manna. One particular bird I could not find in any of the bird dictionary. It was small, kept on humming over the flowers and could fly backward as well as forwards in the air. I came back from my reverie and asked this to the bunch of small kids listening intently to my tale. Bunty blurted, Hummingbird. I smiled and said, I was just checking whether you were paying attention.